Let's pray. Father, as we come before the time of your preached word, I pray that you would cause us to hunger and thirst. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, confident because of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that we will be filled. We thank you for Dr. Brian Chapel, for the gifts that you have given him, for the man that you have made him. Thank you for the provision of this church in this time and space where we could have the word unfolded before us, confident that you, who started this work in our hearts, will bring it to completion, even today, cutting away the parts of us that must die, showing us again the great hope that is in Jesus, the mercy that is offered every day new. Lord, we pray that you would bless our brother as he preaches again this evening and tomorrow and that we would be eager to feed and that this word would go out far from hearts in which it has been pressed deep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I have you stand for the reading of God's word and invite Brian Chapel to come up, I wanted to say a few things about him. 1994 is when I, along with my dear bride, Christina, moved to St. Louis to attend Covenant Theological Seminary. We've been serving a church in Oklahoma City, a PCA church called Heritage Presbyterian Church, a very small church, but that's where we were deeply rooted in the Reformed tradition. When I got to St. Louis, I took summer Greek with Dr. Yarbrough, and then I met soon after Dr. Chapel in a class called Prep and Delivery. This is the book one of a few books that was required for the class. This is not a copy of the book, it's the actual book. I showed it to him this morning, he's like, you've got the old cover. Yes, there's perhaps a new cover that looks a little more modern. It's in our bookstore, along with a number of other books, like this one, The Gospel According to Daniel. I quoted from it a lot during this last series on Daniel. But I wanted to read something to you briefly. The very first line I marked in this book is on page 18, under a section entitled The Power of the Word. Here's what he wrote. Ultimately, preaching accomplishes its spiritual purpose, not because of the skills of the preacher, but because of the power of the scripture proclaimed. The word of God is living and active. In this book, he unfolds what would become known as the Chapellian method. It's a way to understand how to preach, how to extract things from the text, how to see in every passage of scripture that it's pointing to Jesus. He writes later in the book in a section called Word and Witness, the Bible requires us to construct our messages in such a way as to reveal the grace that is the ultimate focus of every text, the ultimate enablement for every instruction, and the only source of true holiness. Without understanding our daily dependence upon grace, we have little hope of reflecting the character that endorses the integrity of our own messages. 
Discovering the redemptive context of every text allows us to use the whole Bible to discern the grace we need to preach and live so as to lead others closer to fellowship with our Lord. And that's something that he focuses on so much. It's not just the gifts of the preacher. It's the man. It's Christ in the man. I'll close this introduction with this sentence. No matter how great your skill, you are unlikely to lead others closer to God if your heart does not reflect the continuing work of the Savior in your life. And here's the truth. That's not true just of preachers. That's true of the priesthood of all believers. Don't forget that. Brian Chapel has taught me and continues to teach me much about grace. We will never understand until heaven the fullness of grace. And it's what must be preached time and time again. A couple more things very quickly. Brian is the pastor emeritus of the historic Grace Presbyterian Church, a church he served after being the president of Covenant Seminary, before becoming what he currently holds as the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America. He is the president emeritus of Covenant Theological Seminary, and God used him to do mighty things to impact that body. Brian and his wife Kathy have four adult children and many grandchildren and more to come. We are so grateful that he agreed to come again to Winter Grace because he was one of the early preachers of this ministry, which Paul Settle started so many years ago. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. It's printed in your bulletin. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in welcoming Brian Chapel. I thank you and your pastor for kind words, which I know to be genuine because a century or so ago, he was the youth leader for my children. And they loved the Lord. And he was influential in their lives. The youngest of them will marry this July to another believer. And I'm so thankful for your pastor who was consistent in his testimony to them. And they walk with the Lord in part because of such models for which I am so thankful. He read the Lord's word to you, words that we treasure, but sometimes find difficult for various reasons even that our nation struggles with. Consider even this very day. As Russian troops by the tens of thousands are perched on the border of Ukraine. And our president and most people of this nation are resolute in the determination that our troops will stay distant. Too fresh in our 
memories and etched in our hearts are the images of chaos at the airport, of shame and blame for people abandoned, for embarrassment and the blame of many nations, for the Arab Spring that was supposed to occur and that never, never really came to maturity. Over and over again, from our president and across the nation, our people echo, no more forever wars. We remember Gulf One and Gulf Two and Iran and Iraq, now Afghanistan. And if there's a refrain among us, it is, can anything good come out of the Muslim world? Can anything good come out of the Middle East? In response, I'll simply cite Christian News commentator Jim Dennison, who quotes the missionary Tom Doyle. He says, in recent years, so many Muslims have been coming to Christ that ministries have been placing ads in newspapers across the Middle East asking, have you seen the man in white robes in your dreams. The ads are a response to the thousands of reports of what is happening in the Muslim world as person after person without contact with each other are reporting that in their dreams, those who have been taught to hate Jesus are receiving a welcome from the man in white robes named Jesus. Now I must tell you, I am a reformed Presbyterian and I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> but this I know, by the providence of God, there is an amazing mercy on display. At the very same time, that we are experiencing national embarrassment at the abject failure of a government and military that we spent billions upon and spent our warriors' blood for. God is bringing souls to eternity for the name of Jesus. At the very same time that our hearts are rent by our warriors' past sacrifices and our allies' current jeopardy, God is turning hearts to Jesus. At the very same time that we are casting blame and hanging our heads in shame, our God is claiming souls for eternity for Jesus. Please do not miss what secular journalists do not see and cannot say. There are quite literally tens of thousands who are turning to Jesus in the Middle East, so much so that in the last 15 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ than in the last 15 centuries. It is amazing what is happening. It is always what happens in the gospel. Out of darkness and pain and shame, Jesus comes and mercy flows. We have seen it before 
In 1948, when the communists cast the missionaries out of China, we said, the gospel is done. It had just begun. Because out of darkness and shame and pain, Jesus comes and mercy flows. So has it always been. When the apostles watched their Savior die upon a cross in crucifixion, they knew what it was to experience darkness and shame and pain. But Jesus would come and mercy would flow out of that experience. So even to this day, the apostle points our minds to the realities of the gospel in places that we will not perceive. It is just not national. It is not just historical. But what God works in our lives. After all, what has the apostle Paul done in this book of Romans that we so often cite as the whole Bible in one book? As the apostle starts with, with Adam and he says, through Adam, the, the race of humanity fell. So that now there is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he included himself in that. So that he, even as an apostle, would say, that which I want to do, I do not do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And his response from the gospel is what? Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, things present, things to come, height or depth, or anything else, in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Out of my darkness and my pain and my shame, Jesus comes and mercy flows. So that the apostle wants us to claim it so much that at this pivot point in the book of Romans, where he has spent 11 chapters saying what God has done in Christ, he now wants to tell us how we respond. But he begins by pointing to that amazing mercy. Verse 1 of Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, make, make mercy your motivation. There, there's much to do. He's going to cite our personal and our corporate responsibilities, our, our moral, our civil responsibilities. But before he names one of them, he's saying, remember the mercy. Now, you, you won't perceive the power of what he's saying until you think to yourself, what could the apostle put in the place of that, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God? After all, he could have said, I appeal to you, therefore, by the guilt you will feel if you fail. I appeal to you, therefore, by the rejection you will face if you fall. He says none of that. Instead, he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, you can't hear what he is saying 
if you have some of the childhood experience that I did. Raised in an evangelical church, I was a member of what is known as the BMA. Any of you of my vintage wants a part of the BMA? The Bible Memory Association. Evangelical churches across denominations belong to the Bible Memory Association and, and their children every month got a well-illustrated book with a number of Bible verses. And if you memorize enough Bible verses, you got a prize. I'm not defending the theology of this. I'm just saying that's what we did. I can remember with pride when I would memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I would get my glow-in-the-dark cross. <laughs> and because of that deep in my DNA, I could, to this day, do it in the King James. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, I can just rattle it off like that as things you could do when you were a child. But even though I said all the right words, it was that performance mentality that made what I said not what I heard. This is what I heard. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable act of worship. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. But isn't that what you heard? You be a good living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. The word holy should have been a clue. Is anything you do going to make you holy before a thrice holy God? The answer is no. Here's what you must understand. Those word, words, holy and acceptable, are not a statement of what you will become. They are a declaration of what you are. You are holy and acceptable to God. And our minds want to debate. Now, that can't possibly be true. I I know my weaknesses, I know my struggles, I know my lust, my ambition, my anger, my bitterness. How could I be holy and acceptable to God? Well, how did the verse begin? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Not by what you do, but by what he has provided. For 11 chapters, the apostle has said, this is what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. He who was holy, came and died in your behalf. And the consequence is, you are made right before him, the righteousness of God, through faith, in Jesus Christ, has come to all who believe without distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a free gift. It's his mercy, not our merit. And we are to claim that every day because it's the motivation driving the Christian life. The joy of the Lord shall be our strength. And that strength comes from knowing you've got somebody in your corner. You've got somebody cheering for you. You've got somebody for you. But it is so easy to forget. You know, I, 
I admire the, the tender heart of, of my wife, Kathy. You know, even with our children these days, when, when my energy and my patience are running toward empty, her gas tank is full. <laughs> She's got endless ability to love and to care and to forgive for our grandchildren. But you know, sometimes when there's been an antic or a mistake by one of our grandkids that reminds her of our children and a mistake that she made at some point, a word in anger, God is not given, anger that came from, she says, it can be so debilitating to her heart. It, 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 it can not only create tears, it, it can just throw her into a depression. And so she says what she's resolved she has to do, whenever Satan comes and tempts her to go into that file cabinet of past sins and failures and mistakes, she said, I resolved never to go into that file drawer unless I open it with the key called mercy. So must you. It is the reality of the Christian life that we cannot do what God requires us to do unless we have understood that he is appealing to us to honor him because of the mercies of God, not because of any earning or merit that we will gain. And that's not just for moms. That's for everybody in the church, even church leaders. Very dear to me is the account of Alexander White, the, the Scottish minister of the last century, who talks about a church meeting which ministers gathered in his home. And the meeting ran late, but at some point everybody left except for one older minister who just lingered. So long it became embarrassing. And then at some point the older man said to Dr. White, he said, oh now, Dr. White, what word of comfort do you have for an old sinner like me? And Alexander White said, it took my breath away. He was an old saint, but he had lost the joy of the gospel. Beneath the jest was true pain. And Dr. White said, I didn't know what to do. And so he just, he just got up out of his chair and he crossed the room to where the older man was sitting. He took his hand and he said, what word of comfort but that we have to deal with the one who delights in mercy. The words of the prophet Micah. Not much more was said that day, but the next day a, a message came back to Dr. White from the older man. Dear Dr. White, that word of comfort that you gave me, it was joy to my heart. It was strength to my soul. I was near the gates of despair, but you brought me hope again. And next time, when Satan comes to me and casts my sin in my face, I will say to him, yes, it's all true. And you know not the half of it. But I have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. And so do you. Failure. Sin, bitterness, weakness, you know it. You may not even know the half of it. But you have to deal with the one who delights in showing mercy. What difference does that make? It's not just motivation. It is power. The apostle continues in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world 
But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I must tell you, when you hear that, be not conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, for many of us who are kind of long in Christian circles, we've often heard that verse as, as you should renew your mind so that you can be transformed and not conform to the world. And the way you renew your mind is read good books, think pure thoughts, have a really good Christian worldview. Now, I must tell you, there are verses in the Bible about having your mind filled with good thoughts and pure thoughts and right worldview. This is not one of those passages. What is the apostle talking about? He, he actually began this passage grieving for his fellow Jews. He said of them, I can bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. There is something wrong with their minds. What is it? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They had a zeal for God that was based upon their merit. How much can I do to make God approve me? And as a consequence, they would not recognize the righteousness that God alone could provide through Jesus Christ. But not you, said the apostle. You should be renewed. Why? Because your mind's on the right things. What is that? The mercy of God. He has made you right with him. We are always humble before his mercy. We are always made strong by our joy in what he has provided, not by trying to perform in such a way that we would be made right. How does, how does mercy change us? How does knowing that, that God is calling us holy and acceptable despite our unacceptable weaknesses and sin? What does it mean when you know you got somebody in your corner, an advocate, always for you? My long-term mission leader friend Paul Koister talks about a, a time in his life when he was ministering in a poor school district in a part of this nation. And in that school district, many disadvantages, school children struggled, particularly if you struggled to read, you were in long-term trouble. Because even the school district's remedial reading programs designed to get kids back up on grade level seemed never to succeed. If you got labeled as a problem reader, the label itself seemed destructive. The, the remedial reading program was like an academic whirlpool just sucking you down and nobody got on top. Except for one young woman. Her name was Edie. And because she was good at track, they called her Speedy Edie. Speedy Edie got out. She got back on grade level. And of course now everybody in the district, the administrators, go to her teacher. What, what, what different book did you use? I didn't use a different book. Well, what different curriculum did you use? I didn't use a different curriculum. Well, what different method did you? I didn't use a different method. Well, you must have done something different. What did you do with Edie? Said the teacher. Well, you know she runs track. Yes, we all know about Speedy Edie. What did you do? Said the teacher, sometimes I went to her track meets and I cheered for her. 
And that was the difference. You are holy and acceptable to God. But God, I failed with my health. You are holy and acceptable to But God, I got so angry at my You are holy and acceptable. But God, I, 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 I fell again. You are holy and acceptable to God by his mercy, not by your merit. And when you know that, it is strength to your soul. It's the willingness to get up again, to try again. It's what makes reasonable service reasonable because you recognize God is the very one who's now for you. Now, I, I just imagine, I know this is kind of far-fetched, but I just imagine there might be a few people here today who might watch a football game later in the day. And your minds will be far away on something else. But what if you recognized that at the very moment that that touchdown is scored and somebody is saying, hooray, that you could, you could tilt an ear toward heaven and you could hear the angelic host praising God, pointing to you and saying, not hooray, but holy and acceptable to God. And knowing that, we get up, we, we fight. In fact, everything that was unreasonable before becomes reasonable service because of the delight that we have in the work of God. And so he says things like verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, and that becomes reasonable. Why? Because we've known such mercy. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But Lord, do you know what they did to me? Do you know how they hurt my family? But I will think on the mercy to me. And what you're asking of me actually becomes reasonable service. Never avenge yourselves. Do not pass judgment on any other. We who are strong, bear with those who are weak. But Lord, they're weak. <laughs> So are you. But you are holy and acceptable to God by his mercy. We just have to keep remembering the mercy, using the events and the circumstances of our lives to rejoice in the grace of God. I think of it that, that one day I came home from work and my wife said to our oldest son, she said, boy, he's, he's not feeling well. And by evening time, he was struggling to breathe. And I can remember going into his bedroom. He was lying on the bed. And I, and I put my hand on his back just to comfort and pat his back. And, and when I did, I felt his shoulders do something that made me begin to weep. As I put my hand on his back, I felt him hunch his shoulders. The way an asthmatic automatically does when he's just trying to take in another milliliter of oxygen. I had done it a thousand times. I grew up with asthma, the days in the hospital, the weeks missed from school, preparing for sports events for months, only to be denied by an attack the night before. And as I heard my son struggle to breathe, I thought to myself, oh my child, how I wish I could spare you what I went through. And it was then that I thought of the mercy of other shoulders rolled against the wood of a cross and the breath taken in with such pain and agony also that our Savior would say, oh my child, 
This I do to spare you what I go through. Behold what manner of love he has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. By mercy, he saves us. By mercy, he motivates us. By mercy, he empowers us. By the mercy, by the mercy, by the mercy. It is the echo of grace that makes our service sweet and our hearts strong. You have a glorious church, wondrous pastor, a great leadership role in our denomination, but what will give you the ministry of the gospel is to celebrate the mercy of God, to make it plain and loud and strong. You are holy and acceptable to God. Rejoice by his mercy, and may the joy of the Lord be his strength to your hearts. Father, so bless these people, not with greater resources than the gospel, not with greater joy than your grace. Teach them again and again of the mercy that makes them and all to whom they will minister holy and acceptable to God because of the blood of Jesus that washes away our sin and makes us right with you forever. Sing of the mercy and teach us of the grace, we pray, that we might be strong for you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.